Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, friends, once again, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here and so grateful you're here for worship today. If you're joining us online, um, we're really thankful that you are here as well. We're actually finishing up our summer series in Proverbs today. It's a series that we're calling Masterclass Expert Advice on Living Well. And we might revisit the book of Proverbs again next summer because it makes just for a great short little study that's really practical to our everyday lives. Would you agree? Yeah, the last uh, few weeks together, I don't know about you, but I've just sensed God stirring something new and fresh in me and in us. And um, that's to be expected because this is the word of God, number one. But number two, the book of Proverbs is designed not just to be studied, but applied. It's designed for us to, to take it in and to take it to our feet and to the streets, not just to our heads. Remember, we have Proverbs in the scriptures, but Proverbs are not unique to the scriptures. The cultures throughout time have had different Proverbs, and a proverb is simply a short, pithy statement about the way that the world generally works. Would you say this next phrase with me? I hope that you're starting to get it by now, but they are principles, not promises. And sometimes when you read through the book of Proverbs looking for a promise, you can be led astray, you can be let down. I know so many people who've read the proverb, train a child up in the way of the Lord, and if they, when they are older, they will not depart from it, right? Most of the time. Because a proverb is a principle, not a promise. So we all have seen exceptions to that. And Solomon would say, well, absolutely, absolutely. This is the way that the world generally works. And I want you to keep that in mind today because as we study today, it's gonna be important that we remember that these are principles, not promises. I was in college and I had just started to follow Jesus ardently and passionately. And there was a book that came out that it seemed like everyone was reading. It was entitled The Prayer of Jabez. Did anybody remember this book? And it was sort of a thing in the early 2000s. I mean, Bruce Wilkerson sold 4.4 million copies of this short little book. And this book was written off of a prayer that was prayed by a man named... Jabez, right? And Jabez, you just need to know this, is only mentioned one time in the Bible. He only gets one verse. And in his verse, we have his prayer recorded. And here's his prayer. It says, And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed. Enlarge my territory. That your hand would be with me, that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. And so God granted what he requested. You have read everything now that the scriptures have to say about Jabez, okay? And, and not only that, but the premise of the book was essentially, if you pray Jabez's prayer, you will get Jabez's blessing. It's sort of like an equation. Just pray the prayer and then God will spit out the results that you want. And there's this one phrase in there that just sort of is a bit of a head scratcher. Uh, Enlarge my territory. It seems a bit imperialistic, doesn't it? I mean, somebody is on the other edge of that being enlarged. What if they're praying the same prayer? Right? Like, how, how does all of this work? And yet, I think that even those furthest from God would say, if it's possible that God would answer that prayer, I'll pray it. God, give me more. 
Give me more joy. Give me more money. Give me more life. God, give me more. And here's the shocker. Did you know that God actually does want to give you more? He does. He does. But it comes in a surprising, subversive, almost like alternative wisdom type of manner. There is a way to expand your world. There's a way to expand your proverbial territory. But I want to just break something to you. It's not just in praying the prayer of Jabez. It's actually in walking in the way of wisdom. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to Proverbs chapter 11? Because it's here that Solomon is going to lay down wisdom for us, divine wisdom in such a way where he's going to invite us to step into the way that God has designed the world to work, which is what wisdom is. But here we're going to see that God actually does want to give us more. But it comes in a way that we might not expect. Here's what Solomon wrote. He said, one, say it with me, manual faith, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer, which is an interesting picture, is it not? They give and then they get richer, which is the opposite of what we might expect. And another withholds what he should give and suffers want. So one person, he's saying there's really two dispositions that you can have in life. One is as a, a person who gives and the other is of a person who withholds. And I was studying this this week and I recognized that I think we probably all have a little bit of stinginess somewhere in us. Can I get an amen? I mean, there's, all th there's things that all of us would want to hold onto. Um, my wife texted me while I was studying on Monday and said, someone is asking to borrow some of our backpacking equipment. And I texted back and said, since I am preaching on generosity, I should probably say yes. <laughs> but I waited a little while to text her back. And in the meantime, this person found another person to loan them some backpacking equipment. And my wife texted me back and said, she found somebody else. And I wrote back and said, praise be to God. <laughs> and Kelly wrote and said to me, but now you still get credit for saying yes but you don't have to loan it to them. And I wrote back and said, win-win, right? They count me in. Here's the other thing I'm stingy with, um, my books. And um, if you ask me to borrow a book, something inside of me will first die, okay? Secondly, I will go over to my bookshelf, get the book you wanna borrow. I will get the stamp that I have had made that says property of the library of Ryan Paulson on it. I will stamp the book I will give it to you and I will ask for a commitment on the date that you plan on giving it back to me. Okay, like, and uh, do you have something like that in your life? Where there's like a lot of stuff that you would give freely and yet there's a few things that you go, mm, I'm not so sure. And Solomon wants us to, to sort of look at our hearts and he wants to check our hearts on that. And then he says that there's something that he should give, which is an interesting phrase. Now, I don't want to should on you this morning, okay? But I think what Solomon's saying is that while we are not all called to give the same thing, we are all called to give something. And so the question is, what is our general disposition in life? Is it one of holding or is it one of, of giving? I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased this passage when he said, the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy 
gets smaller and smaller. What a picture. Uh, To say, if you open your hands and your heart and your time and your pocketbook to people, then your world's actually going to grow. I mean, that sounds a bit like Jabez's prayer, expand my territory. But as you hold things more tightly and more closely, and to use his word, become stingy, your world actually starts to cave in on itself. I love the way that Solomon put it at the very beginning of this book. He said, such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of the possessors. To say it another way, greed eventually ends up killing us. Like our lives just cave in on themselves and crush us. Here's his point. Here's the alternative, subversive, shocking, surprising wisdom that Solomon's lying down. That when we hold tightly, our life shrinks. But as we give generously, our life grows. Did you know that they have actually empirically proven this to be true? There's a number of different studies that you can find that draw out the truth that we were wired for generosity. A recent one that I read just this week, they did this study where they gave one group of people a certain amount of money and they told them for the next month, we're gonna give you this money each day and we want you to spend it on yourself. They gave a second group the same amount of money and what they told them is each day this month, we want you to spend this money on somebody else. Do you know what they found? Guess which group actually grew in their happiness over that month? Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) No, the, the people who gave, right? The people who gave, those people actually were proven to have more happiness when they started. At the end of the study, it says the Association for Psychological Science has revealed that the act of giving gifts seems to bring people happiness that can withstand the test of time. So the old adage, money can't buy you happiness may be true, but it may also be true that giving away your money can buy you happiness. Or to use Winston Churchill's proverb, you make a living by what you get, but you make a life by what you give. Or to say it another way, to quote Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So here's my question. What type of growth or expansion is Solomon talking about? The world of the stingy grows smaller and smaller. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. I mean, is Solomon going 1980s tele-evangelist on us? Like sow your $5 seed and see it turn into $100 immediately? Is Is he giving us a pitch? Is that what Solomon's doing? No, remember, these are principles, not promises. He's saying, that the way that God wired the world to work is that as you are generous, your world grows. And it grows in a variety of different ways. It might grow in you having more freedom. It might grow in you having more influence. It might grow in you having more joy or more love. It might grow in the relationships that you cultivate because of your generosity. It might mean that you are blessed financially. It might not, but it might mean that. But what Solomon is saying is put God to the test in this. Be more generous and see what it does to your life. I'm convinced that blessing always follows obedience. And that God commands us to be generous for our good. He commands us to be generous. Now, um, 
let me do my best to name something that's sort of in the air or maybe something that's at the gas pump. <laughs> this isn't a great time to talk about generosity, is it? I mean, we live in uncertain economic times. We're reminded of it every time we fill up our car. We're reminded of it when we go to the store. It seems like prices continue to inch up. I mean, sure, the stock market bounced back a little bit last week, but it's still not exactly where we want it to be. And so you might say, Ryan, why in the world are you talking about generosity at a time when the world is so uncertain? Here's why, here's why. Because wisdom doesn't become untrue when our world gets uncertain. Wisdom doesn't become untrue when our world gets uncertain. In fact, I think this is even more of a time for us to say, let's fly against the stream and see what God might do. But here's something else that's sort of in the air. Whenever we start to talk about generosity or money in the church, I know that there are some of you that sort of check out. Listen, um, Air One Radio just got done doing their week of pledge drives. Did anybody not listen to Air One as much as normal this last week, right? Yes, a few of you are with me. So I get it. Some of you would want to turn the dial right now. But let me try to name why that is, why we tend to resist talking about money, even in church. Here, here's why. Because I think all of us have seen the abuses of money and religious organizations on some level. We've seen people that took advantage and that made promises and that called on people to give sacrificially and then flew around in private jets, right? I have a used private jet, just so we're clear. It's not, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. But yeah, we've all seen this, right? We've all seen this. Um, the second reason that we tend to resist is that we tend to view our money as a private matter. I had a friend who was traveling on business and there was somebody of a different nationality that was sitting next to him and they got into this conversation and a few minutes into the conversation, the person turned to him and said, so how much do you make on an annual basis? And my friend was a bit taken aback because in our culture, we don't typically talk about those kind of things, right? We tend to view money as more of a private matter. And the next thing sort of is a domino effect from that truth, and it's that we do not believe that money has much, if anything, to do with our discipleship. And it's the outflow of viewing our money as more of a privatized thing than a public thing. But here's what I would say is God doesn't view it that way. Like God views our generosity as deeply and intricately connected to the people that we are becoming. Uh, listen to the way that Jesus would say it. He said, for where your what? Treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is a fascinating statement because Jesus is saying that your affections actually follow your money. Like they don't lead the way. They follow it. So if you want your heart to grow in love, he goes, well, then you've got to put your earthly treasure in the right place. So today, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna bring something into the open that most of us would wanna keep hidden. We're gonna talk about something, generosity. We're gonna talk about something that most of us get a little bit uncomfortable with and we start to push back a little bit because it's part of our discipleship, because it's part of the people that we're becoming and because as Solomon would say, there's a lot on the line here. Like what's on the line is whether or not our world increases and grows and enlarges or 
whether it shrinks in on us. And so let me just say at the onset of our conversation, this is not about guilt. This is not about shame. This is not, well, you should have been doing this and I can't believe not at all. If you hear that, that's the voice of the enemy, not God. And God would want us to just open our lives to him to say, will you let me search you and know you and then point you in a better way if one's possible, amen? Amen. And so listen to the way that Solomon goes on and he talks about having an ever-expanding world. Here's what he says. He says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. Now this phrase brings blessing has so much underneath it. I mean, think about it. In order to bring blessing, what do you have to do? You've got you've to work hard so that you have something that you've produced. You have to have more than you need in order to survive. And then you have to bring that more to a place where it can be of benefit to other people. There's a lot that's underneath this bringing of blessing, but there's two things that I want us to notice. It's that generosity requires intentionality and margin. Intentionality and margin. We cannot be generous if we do not intentionally decide to be generous and we can't be generous if we don't have margin in our lives. I love the way that In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus paints this picture of what God's people are intended and designed to be like. And it's a commandment about what they're supposed to do with their fields, their their crops. And listen to the way that Leviticus records this in chapter 19. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your, your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. Did you catch this? Three commandments. Number one, um, don't harvest the very edge of your field. Leave that for people who are walking by who do not have enough so that they can come up to your field and help themselves from your crop. Second, second, do not go and gather the grapes that fall on the ground. Leave them for the exact same reason. And finally, don't strip your vines bare. Leave a little bit of fruit on them. And he's calling the Israelite people to live by design, not by default. Because our default is, I'm going to use all I got. I'm going to harvest up to the very edge. What's mine is mine and I'm gonna use it for my benefit. But he's calling them to create margin. In the design world, they would call this white space. Are you familiar with that term? White space in the design world is a space that's sort of left around the margin of a page or in between design elements. And according to Adobe, who designs some of the software that most people use for design, they see the basic role of white space is to let your design breathe. And I would argue that the same thing that's true of design, that it works better when there's white space, is the exact same thing that's true of life. It works better when there's white space. It works better when there's margin. But margin's hard, is it not? 
I mean, the statistics would say that the average American has roughly $6,200 in consumer credit card debt. The average household has roughly $10,000 in consumer credit card debt. That's just talking about our money. We don't have a lot of margin when it comes to the way that we interact with our funds, but let's, just, let's talk about our calendar. Like, I think our calendars have very little white space also, right? We go from one thing to another. As a dad of a family that has little kids, I know we're just like, it seems like we're going from one sporting event to another some days, right? Yeah, we, we may not have margin in our checkbook, but we also may not have margin in our calendar. But generosity, catch this, generosity is only possible where there's margin. You can have the best heart, but if you have no margin, there's no way to genuinely be generous. And so that's why the scriptures over and over again will call us to be intentional, call us to decide. I love the way that Paul would write it to the church in Corinth when he said, each one of you must give as he has, what? Decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, let me just go into theology really quick. Um, There's nowhere in the New Testament that reiterates the principle of a tithe. That's not a command for new covenant believers. But I always tell people that doesn't mean that we aren't called to give. In fact, our new command is to give generously as if to say, you don't have to be limited to a tithe, (laughs) right? Like you're free to give as much as God would have you give decided in your heart. So, You may create a budget that looks something like, well, here's what we're going to do with our money or our time or however you look at it. We're going to give 10%. We're going to save 10%. We're going to live on 80%. That's a very rudimentary budget that a lot of people try to live by. And one of the things that's cool about this is that it works on percentages. And you may go, I don't have all that much. Great. God's not calling you to give something you don't have. He's not calling you to be generous with something you don't have, but what would it look like to create more margin? And what would it look like to start to incorporate this into our lives as we are growing? I love the way that John D. Rockefeller put it when he said, I would never have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. (laughs) I love that picture. One of the ways that Kelly and I have decided to be intentional about generosity is we've just set up reoccurring, reoccurring online giving. And we haven't always done that. Uh, you may remember when we used to pass the plates during worship. Anybody remember that? Okay. And we used to love to write a check each week and put it in the plate because there was this visceral response to saying, God, I am trusting you with everything And therefore, a picture of that is being generous to you. How many of you missed that? I I do to a certain extent. Now I just do it when I get the email that tells me this money was given. I do the same thing. God, thank you for being generous. Thank you for the way that you've given. Thank you for the way that you loved. Everything I have is yours. And it's intentionality and it's margin And my guess is that Jesus is inviting you to step into that if you're not already there in some way. In fact, if you'd like help getting set up or figuring out, answering some questions about how to give online, our team will be in the back right after the service next to the welcome desk. They'd love to answer questions for you. But this is about intentionality and it's about margin. Second, here's what Solomon said. He said, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. 
And the one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Now notice that Solomon is suggesting that there is a boomerang effect, a reciprocal nature of what happens when we are generous. It starts to come back on us also. Now that's not a reason in and of itself to be generous, but it is a result of living a generous lifestyle. It's the the George Bailey effect, if you will, from It's a Wonderful Life. And remember, this is a principle, it's not a promise, but I think we'd agree it's generally true that those who are generous have people who are willing to help them when it comes to their time of need, right? And what Solomon's teaching us is that generosity is love expressed that results in love experienced. It's this beautiful picture of the reality that you cannot outgive God, that as you're generous, you're quote, enriched, or you're watered, or we might say our souls start to become more and more alive. Our life is expanded. But if you were to read through the book of Proverbs, there's um, one type of person that the people of God are called to be generous to. There's a, there's a type of person that God says, keep your eyes and ears open. And the person is in, uh, termed the poor. Now, in our day and time, that's a bit of a pejorative. But back in the scriptures, it was just simply meant somebody who was in need. So you might hear it like, keep your eyes open for people who are in need. In fact, that's exactly what Solomon calls us to do. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. Now, hides his eyes is an idiomatic phrase that means turns a blind eye, chooses to not see. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but we have a unique ability to not see things that are right in front of us, right? The date was January 12th of 2017, or 2007. The scene was a busy subway in Washington, D.C. It was just packed during rush hour. And in the corner, if you were to have looked closely, you would have seen a man playing the violin. He played six Bach pieces for 15 minutes, or sorry, for 45 minutes. And during that time, he had six people who stood and watched He had 20 people who threw money into the hat that was out front. And in that 45 minutes, he collected roughly $32. And then he was finished with his sixth Bach piece. He put his violin back into its case to no applause, no recognition, and he walked off. Well, the violin that he put into his case was worth $3.5 million dollars. The violinist's name is Joshua Bell. He was one of the best musicians in the world. The week before, he had sold out a Boston auditorium at roughly $100 a ticket, and he ended that concert to a standing ovation. And it painted this picture for me of the way that we have a tendency to just walk past people. 
to, to not notice. And Solomon says, you can take that principle to the next level when it comes to people who are struggling and poor and in need, that we have a tendency just to have blind eyes to them. We live with blinders on. But by way of contrast, if you read through the gospels, one of the things that you will notice about Jesus, and I hope that you fall in love with about Jesus, is that Jesus has this unique ability to see people. Uh, He sees the man who's longing for healing, waiting on a mat to be cared for. He sees the people gathered on a mountain longing for a new world. He sees the rich man who's bound by his wealth. He sees the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus has this unique ability to see people and to see to their hearts. What would it look like the next time you're walking into the grocery store? The next time you're walking into your school? or your workplace, to really see people and to see people who are struggling or in need. I love the way that my wife lives this out so well. But the second thing Solomon says is, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So he says, listen, it's possible to close your eyes and to say, no, I'm just gonna uh, be in my own little world. And then it's possible also to close your ears. And I think we do this in a number of different ways. But maybe some of the ways are we assume that we know why people are in the situation that they're in, right? Like they they must not have worked hard or they must have made some bad decisions. They're they're, they're reaping what they have sown. Or, Or maybe just maybe if I were in their position, here's how I would get out of it, right? And we don't hear people sometimes because we assume we know their story. But if we're gonna be generous, I think we have to open our hearts and our minds and our ears to say to people, I want to hear your story. I want to hear the way that God's at work in your life. I want to hear even maybe those that are struggling, what led to this point so that we would be people who see intentionally, who decide to listen, and then who can say, I hear you and I see you and I want to prayerfully respond because my God is a generous God. I'm firmly convinced that your generosity may be the answer to somebody's prayer. Your generosity may be the answer to somebody's prayer. That somebody, somebody is waiting to see the fingerprints of God through your generosity. And please, 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 let's remember, this is not all about money. You can be generous with your time. You can be generous with your compassion. You can be generous with your table and inviting others to join around your table. You can be generous with your skills. I mean, I'm reminded of a group in our church right now, men on a mission. There are nine of them who are on their way, or actually they got up to Alaska. They took a week out of their life, paid for the trip all on their own in order to go up and work for a missions organization for free for nine days. How many of you wish they'd come to your house? Right? Like, but this group of guys is up there right now. You can, I'm showing you the picture so you can pray, but also so that you can say, God, what might it look like for me to step into this too? And I just want to affirm, so many of you are already living this out. And it's the reason that more and more people are hearing about the good news of Jesus. So thank you. But generosity just catapults us into God's mission. But it's not just a way that we love people, and it's not just a way that opens us up to be loved by others. It's also a way that we worship God. And listen to the way that Solomon put it. He said, whoever, say it with me, trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like green leaf. 
And here, I mean, Solomon goes for the jugular, doesn't he? I mean, he's confronting our idols. He's going after our trust. He's saying, listen, you can trust in your money or you can trust in God, but you can't trust in both. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is the center and focus of our trust? Because one of the main competitors to our trust in Jesus is our trust in our stuff. And so Solomon would say, listen, generosity reveals the locus of your trust. Or we might say that generosity is trust in action. Solomon might say, oh, yeah, 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 you can tell me about how you trust God, but I'll see it played out in your life through whether or not you're generous. Many families who do foster care or adopt from overseas or from situations where kids come from where they haven't had enough to eat and enough to survive will say that the kids, even as they come into their homes, experience what's called food insecurity. So when a child hasn't had enough, they'll take more than they need, uh, sort, of, sort of hoard in order to make sure I've got to have enough because I can't trust that another meal's coming for me. And it takes a long time for kids to come to the place where they can trust there's gonna be enough. There's gonna be enough. And I think that there's some of us, we interact with God in a way where we say, I've got a hoard. I've got, I've got to keep it. I know, I I can read the life of the generous grows, the life of the stingy shrinks. I can read that. But God, the truth of the matter is, I'm not sure I can trust you, so I've got to hoard my stuff. Listen, if you've ever watched the show Hoarders, nobody has ever watched that show and gone, that person's blessed. That person's living the good life. No, no. No, they may have a ton of stuff, but their life is shrinking. Why? Because they don't trust that there's something better on the other end of letting go, of letting go. We might say that they have a a scarcity mentality. And I think at the very foundation, here's the question we've got to answer. Here's the question every single person in this room has to answer. Do I really, really trust God? Do I really trust God? Because I'm convinced that we will never be freed to be generous if we don't first trust in his goodness. It's why Paul will write to the church that Timothy's pastoring. He'll write to Timothy and he'll say, as for the rich in this present age, which is most of us, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches not to set their hope or, or to put their, put their faith in riches, but on God. So not on riches, on God. And, and then he describes God. He says, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. What a picture of God. I mean, when you pray, is this the God that you are praying to? He has given me everything to richly enjoy. I mean, every time that I'm reading through Genesis chapter one and two, the picture that's painted for us of God's original act in creation, Adam and Eve wake up in a garden that's called paradise. They have more than enough food. 
They have more than enough shelter. They have more than enough to survive. They have beauty that they are surrounded by. I mean, how great is it that God didn't create them and put them in the desert and say, good luck? No, no, no. He blessed them. He put them in paradise where they had more than enough. Why? So that they would get a good picture of the kind of God that they were created to be in relationship with. A kind of God who provides us with everything to enjoy. And he says, and they're called to good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share with those around them. See, throughout the scriptures, friends, we are painted over and over and over again a picture of a God who is exceedingly, abundantly, radically, ridiculously generous to us. That's our God. In fact, Jesus would say, if you then speaking to his disciples, who are evil, not exactly a compliment, (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? See, some of us are in the shackles of stinginess because we are not convinced of his graciousness. So Jesus says, well, put my father to the test. Put me to the test. So would you just pause for a moment? And I just want you to think of, uh, call to your mind a picture of God. Your default picture when you pray. Is he generous? Is he joy-filled? See, Jesus would say he's a good father who longs to pour good gifts into your life. The truth is your hands have to be open if you're gonna receive them. But if your hands are open, that also means that you're letting go. Throughout this series, as we've come to the end of our teaching, we've intentionally said, What does this piece of wisdom teach us about the gospel? What's the connection to the gospel? Today's no different. And friends, we need to look no further than the cross to have an iron-clad, blood-bought proof that God is more generous than we could ever possibly imagine. That God is better than any image of him that we could ever conjure up on our own. God is so good that he takes our worst and gives us his best. The scriptures would paint the picture like this, that for our sake he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, so that, uh, sorry, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reformers would call this the great exchange, that we get his righteousness and he takes our sin at no cost to you. That's generosity. Can I get an amen? That's a God who's better than we could imagine, abundantly gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that he can do more than we could ask or think or dream or imagine. Friends, look, no, further than the cross. I love the way that Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, put it when he said, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. 
But love, so amazing. This cruciform love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And Watts captured it, man. He captured it. That our generosity is simply a reflection of God's generosity toward us. His love, so amazing. His love, so divine. His love, so generous. And then we go, well, where else can we go? What else can we do except open our lives to you, God? That you might use them for the glory of your name, that you might expand our joy, expand our influence, expand our love, expand our purpose, expand our quote-unquote territory that we might walk in joy and that you might get the glory. And that's exactly where Paul lands in his letter to Timothy. Thus, after you see God is generous and are generous in light of what he's done for you, thus storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That as you're generous, you take hold of life that's really truly life, which is exactly what Solomon said. I mean, read through chapter 11, just these few short verses. What we find is that the life of the generous is enriched. The life of the generous is watered. The life of the generous is blessed. The life of the generous flourishes. This is an enlarged life. And we, friends, are invited in on this massive secret to the way that the universe actually works. Subversive in nature, non-intuitive in its way, that when we are generous, our lives start to grow. So maybe, just maybe today, we could end by you maybe putting your stuff away and just opening your palms as a way to say back to God, God, I surrender. All, all that I have is yours. I, I surrender. And maybe you pray this prayer, God, what would it look like for me to become a more generous person? Not just with your money, but maybe you could ask that question. What would it look like to be more generous financially? But what about generous with your time? Now, some of you need to be more generous with your forgiveness if you're gonna step into the joy that Jesus has for you. More generous with your story. Share what God's done. More generous in your skills. What would it look like for you to be more generous? Will you just ask Jesus right now? Jesus, how are you inviting me to be more generous? And I just wanna create space for the spirit of God to answer that. So Lord, we would come before you and recognize that you are more generous than we could ever imagine. That the very life that we have, the breath that we breathe is gift from you. And we are, we are so grateful. Father, I'm, I'm just really thankful for all the people in this church who model this so well. And God, the ways that you have blessed and the ways that you have moved 
in light of their generosity and behalf of it, God, I'm just so thankful. And Lord, for all of us, would you challenge us afresh to relook at our time, to relook at our table, to relook at our compassion, to relook at our money, to relook at the way that we're offering or withholding forgiveness? God, would you afresh challenge us to be people who walk in generosity, that we might in new ways experience your joy your love and your goodness. As we're generous, would you expand our world for the glory of your name and our joy as we walk with you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.